Aloha kako. I'm Noe Tanigawa, and this is the Aloha Friday Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. It's kind of a new thing we're developing for you, and we'd, we'd really love your input on this. You know, the Aloha Friday Conversation is about great ideas taking root or springing from right here in Hawaii. And I just heard about a cooperative arrangement between a local co-working space and a beautiful co-working space in Kyoto, owned by Dentsu Incorporated, Japan's largest advertising agency. Honolulu's Box Jelly has started a partnership with Dentsu that offers more than just, you know, reciprocal co-working privileges. Box Jelly and Dentsu are both interested in innovative solutions for island-based economies. They think this partnership can be a platform for collaboration in the future. Pretty cool, huh? So I called Rechung Fujihira. He's the founder of Box Jelly. So basically, um, with Dentsu, we, we first met him uh, maybe about a year ago. And um, it's kind of cool because they have a space in Kyoto uh, called Engawa that we visited. The Engawa space is interesting because Kyoto as a city has like these kind of analogies to uh, Honolulu and Hawaii. How so? They're like a cultural center of, of Japan, so they're deeply rooted culture there. And they have this very interesting intersection with the arts as well. And they're very, very tourism-driven. You know, we're sitting there talking, and then um, we came up on this concept of this Satoyama capitalism book. And Satoyama is like the Japanese version of Ahupua'a, you know, and it's like ancestral ways of doing things and how they were able to maintain systems, not so much in an extractive way. Um, so, you know, they're thinking about, hey, like, we don't want to do things in the way that have always been done. And we're thinking about, yeah, yeah, we agree. Like, we should continue to keep looking to the past and inform what we do in the future. We're kind of like kindred kind of souls with us in Angala. Wait, now, are we talking about Dentsu, Japan's largest advertising agency? We, we are talking about Dentsu. So, so Dentsu, uh, you know, as you said, is the largest advertising agency in Japan, right? They do a bunch of different things. And um, they have kind of a lot of things going on in Kyoto as well. It's like they have this, like, huge kind of makery where they can make anything from, like, prototypes of, like, electronics to prototypes of cars, you yeah. know, like everything in between. 3D printers everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, like, kind of amazing space uh-huh. that I really hope, you know, as we build this relationship with them, we'll have uh, be able to get some Hawaii entrepreneurs some access to kind of some of their... But there's always been talk of, like, continuing to build bridges between uh, Hawaii and Japan and the rest of Asia. And I think this is, you know, one place where we can really start to bring people back and forth. And, you know, with the Island Innovation Demo Day and some of the ideas that are kind of cooking but, you know, haven't come to fruition yet, um, we're going to be able to really see people going back and forth after Corona's died down, probably. Yeah, right. Corona. Everybody's concerned about that now. And just heard that Dentsu has 5,000 Tokyo workers telecommuting because one of them uh, t- tested positive for COVID-19. But Rechung and his Japanese counterparts are working on an island innovation demo day. That's going to be a pitch session for particularly island solutions, and it's going to happen here in Hawaii. So we're looking forward to that. Mahalo, Rechong Fujihira, founder of the Box Jelly co-working space in Kaka'ako. They've got a new location inside Ward Center, now sharing privileges with Dentsu's Engawa Kyoto. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. (laughs) 
on Aloha Fridays. It's only right that we showcase Hawaii's wonderful and in some cases like this one, a little bit peculiar local art for this quiz, okay? So you got to check this guy out in the courtyard of the Hawaii State Art Museum. It's really hard to miss the 12-foot-tall Mr. Chicken Pants, crafted by local artist May Izumi. The whole thing began as a much smaller maquette that was transported to a bronze foundry in Berkeley, California, and made there, then brought back to Hawaii and lowered into the museum courtyard by, you guessed it, a giant crane. <laughs> that must have looked crazy. The statue itself is a rather whimsical character. Uh, visitors customize it with scarves and lei or other touches all the time. The top half of this bronze creature uh, resembles something between a dog and a raccoon with a kind of smirk on its face. <laughs> Out the bottom, as the name would suggest, bright pants and the legs of a chicken. So, for today's backyard quiz, can you tell us the name of the mythical Hawaiian trickster that this piece of art is modeled on? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people, yeah, you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Terry Tempest-Williams, author of Erosion, Essays of Undoing. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how our undoing may be our becoming. Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Pacific Database, Chaminade University, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. We started the morning in Kaka'ako at Box Jelly. Let's just stay there and look around a little. Huh? Have you checked the new tats? I mean, that's what it's really like. They're like tattoos springing up on the walls after powwow. Everybody's kind of blinking, you know, the night after. It's a lot of tight new work on the walls. And I thought today we'd check in with someone who knows this scene because he was there at the start of it from a completely different angle. I'd like you to meet developer Christian O'Connor, who helped arrange the very first legit street mural in Kaka'ako. Now they're, ma they're making money. They've been able to create a living wage off the success of Powwow, and a lot of local artists and international artists are making more than a living wage and being able to provide for their families um, doing art where they couldn't before, you know? Well, the art's getting better all the time, and developers like you are liking it. And you see, like, powwows starting to touch our urban fabric in different ways. I think Stanford Card did a really great job with their asset that's across from Alamana Shopping Center. There's bold graffiti art where Kamehameha Schools decided to truly embrace, you know, that, that edgy art when they put it on 680 Alamana, which is the 54 residential units there. Those murals, people, we have to pay for, you know, developers. It's changed our runs, our bus routes, our walks. I see couples from out of town take wedding pictures against <laughs> urban <laughs> art on Oahe or Pohukaina, you know, and it's just wild. It's wild. I met you about 10 years ago when you first started working with Kamehameha School. So could, could we go back to that? Could you tell me what was your position and what was your mission then? And when was that? Oh, gosh. I think, I think I came in 2008, in August 2008, and I came from uh, Muscat, Oman. I was working in real estate development there. And I have two little, I, at the time I had one Hawaiian kid, uh, Benjamin O'Connor, and then, and then I ended up having another, Farah. And so at my, um, their mother 
wasn't going to live in the Middle East and, and is Hawaiian and graduated from Kamehameha in 95. So I really didn't understand at the time that I was I was kind of pulling us in a direction of losing battles. So I ended up moving here and got to opportunity to work for Kamehameha in 2008. And that was just after this big recession. So I was the senior asset manager working in Kaka'ako and a little bit in Kaneohe, managing some ground leases over there, but mostly focused in Kaka'ako. Um, and so... We had, this, we had this amazing community. We had 50 acres of land. Kamehameha has 50 acres of land there. 28 acres was in the process of being entitled when I joined. But we were going through, you know, at that time, we were going through this major economic contraction across the globe, really. And, uh, and so it affected everything. And mm. so everything slowed down dramatically. And nobody really knew where to get any money to do any kind of projects or work at the time. So I view for me with your past experiences. You oh, remember? yeah. So I was coming from, and this sounds, this sounds bad, but I was coming from Oman and Dubai, and we were just dreaming. You know, we were just, everybody had to dream bigger than the next guy because that's really where the competition was happening. It was like you were going to, at the time, you were going to make the money, so you just had to compete and be cooler, neater, sexier than the next guy. So when we got to Kaka'ako and I, you know, I got here and I was like, I was excited to be home to raise my kids and everything was going to work out. But I was like, oh, man, I've got like the ugliest light industrial district in the city. And I went from these visions in the sky to like, oh, my God. You know, and don't get me wrong. It was just old light industrial and it's not brick, right? It's not like old light industrial in Chicago or old light industrial in San Francisco where it's like, Wow, we've got like bombed out quads and huts that could just fall over if you lean. Wall. Yeah, if you could lean on them. And so initially, it was like, what am I doing here? You know, how am I going to do this? Um, that was the first take. You know, like, yeah, oh, yeah. But you had models. I mean, and what describe how this this model works? Like, what do you mean? How you can take a neighborhood and begin to seed it and start getting it. Rolling. Oh well, some of that stuff. Some of that, like my mom is an urban planner, okay? And she worked on this thing called the Hyattsville Gateway Arts District, and it's in Prince George's County, Maryland. In Prince George's County, they have terrible crime issues and a lot of uh, drug distribution and production. So I, I watched my mother from the 1980s through the 90s through the 2000s until she retired, just change the zoning, work with the politicians, change the use types. And what happened was, is as this change happened in the District of Columbia, all the artists started to come and root themselves in this area because they had live-work zoning. They could live and work in older industrial buildings that normally wouldn't have been allowed to do that. And really working off of like a Soho model or a Bronzeville model or some of the other models we've seen in other areas that have naturally occurred with the LGBT communities and the artist communities typically move into districts. They they create really neat expressions. They make it safe, and then people move in because it's safer. So, really, just looking at how art plays a role in that, it was it was it was uh, very interesting for us to see art already happening in Kakaako at Fresh Cafe and other things, and then just taking that art, those concepts, and then kind of giving them a little bit of wind, a little bit of an opportunity to see how art could help reshape and change everything in Kaka'ako. What did you want in there? What were well, you well at? I think initially what's really exciting about doing, doing redevelopment work oh. or developing a district that is a different use, we get an opportunity as asset managers or real estate people. It's like urban gardening for us. And, you know, like beautiful gardens make beautiful places where you have <laughs> like different types of plants that bring different... Yeah, and I noticed you planted some pretty great breweries down yeah, there early yeah. on. Or, or like Pico's a succulent, right? I mean, it's literally a plant place, but yeah. it's really, it attracts a certain oh, yeah. demographic. So so it's really fun to work and, and really create that appropriate, mm. or look to create that mix that's kind of exciting and fun. So you gave incentives for these certain kinds of businesses or what? Well, yeah. So what the, the great point about knocking everything down and changing things is because of all that drama and intense work that happens on your streets and roadways, you know, it's not an ideal time to charge somebody full rent, you know, and try to maximize your return on this space. And I think what we found and learned is that while we're about to go through these intense activities of construction, it gives us a really good opportunity to, you know, nurture small ideas and concepts at 
at very light rents, very low rents. So there has to be a little bit of something because everybody needs to pay for what they're doing. But it also gives an opportunity to say, hey, take this space. You know, I think R&D Cafe was great with mm-hmm. um, uh, Ben Trevino, Wei Fang, and they're a crew of people. You know, or Whole Ox Deli, you know, which was a great concept. It didn't end up working out in Stain, but it was fun to try it. And mm. so there's so many things where you nurtured ideas and the, the trust made a decision. It, you know, it's a team of people make these decisions, but everybody made a decision to really find great ideas, seed those ideas and see if they work out. And if they work out, then let's roll them into the, the final vision of salt or let's move them down to another location where we can have their rents. Oh, really? So the idea isn't just to develop then and then raise the rents and then have them leave? Right. It's to cultivate and hold on to them. Really? I think that's generally the game plan over time. I mean, you got to understand, you know, especially with Kamehameha's perspective and uh, and our and just people's perspectives in general as you live here and learn, mm-hmm. like how to th- I think how to think about our place and our, our space and place and how we're supposed to be here. But you really want to nurture and, and grow innovative businesses because they're that, they're that future for us here. So the beauty of that moment in real estate development time where you are going to redevelop it, but you get to give people a shot, is they get to run with their own vision without a lot of control. And so sometimes you get some wild stuff that you're like, ooh, that's not going to work, and it doesn't, you know. But a lot of times you really get some neat deliveries of really interesting ideas that change everything for us, you know. But what what is the master plan for that Eva of Ward? Hmm. Yeah, no, I think the master plan has always been, you know, 4.4 million square feet, you know, of what? What do you? What uh, I mean, mean, of of residential and retail space with some light industrial. I think it's it's it is that it will be that. I, I think the idea is a walkable, urban, vibrant, filled community where where a lot of the stuff that's created in the community gets installed within the community. And I think Kamehameha Schools in particular had a great vision and idea where. You know, the whole idea really is that we build up all this stuff. We, you know, you build housing, you build a, a space for, for different businesses to survive and live and grow. And then you try to keep those dollars going from one block to the next block, from one block to the next. So if I'm a retail space coming in and I want some cool signage done, I go to Lana Lane and I say, hey, Lana Lane, I need some help with this. And so that transaction really happens from one block to another. And what's really cool about all these local businesses being there is that dollar then stays in the state and it stays in the city and it cycles maybe once, maybe a couple times, but it's just going block to block to block. And I think that's super exciting. And I think that's really a a bigger, broader vision of what you, you hear and what we want is this idea that our money flows to our local community members. They produce beautiful things that we enjoy. And then we put those things up and we honor them or we sell them onward to someone else, you know? And I think, I mean, a lot of the roots of the concepts really boil down to this idea. Can we, can we keep our, our, our money here? Can we keep our value here? Can we, can we work together to create even more value? And then can, can we monetize that and create a living wage for all of us? You know, and I think, I think that's really the roots of a lot of what was happening, yeah. Pretty neat, huh? According to Christian, real estate developers want to cultivate local options. I mean, because they know everybody's looking for a genuine experience, a genuine expression. And one way to get that is nurturing it in place. How's that? O'Connor points out that this year's powwow had 45 local artists out of about 100 participating, and it did not start out that way. A generation of artists who designed tattoos, fabric, graphic media, corporate interiors, and street murals. They're coming on up here in Honolulu. Christian O'Connor left Kamehameha Schools in 2014. He now works on affordable housing developments with City Center LLC. Think that's maybe a tough job? (laughs) Let's find out how tough sometime soon. Neighbor Island Ohana, you gotta bear with us here on Oahu because we're trying to figure out how to be Honolulu right now. The National Community Survey shows a 20-point drop in Honolulu's quality of life rating. I mean, that's us rating our own lives. 
A quarter of the people here think they'll be gone in five years. <laughs> We're figuring this out. I like how Dehan puts it in his 2020 release. It's called Blue. Just came out. Drummer, Dehan, living, working now in Honolulu. We're figuring this out. Happy Aloha Friday. It is the Aloha Friday Conversation on HPR, an hour of art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. And that means all across Hawaii, okay? Not just across and over. <laughs> we want to get into the valleys, along every craggy ridge, and all the way into your nook and cranny, because we want to find out what life is like here, you know? We need all the flavors in this stew, including flavors from the 1951 Lanai Pineapple Workers Strike. There's gotta be some umami there, right? <laughs> it's all in this month's edition of Lanai Today. So think back, okay, mid-1920s, James Dole had made the island of Lanai into the largest pineapple plantation in the world. In fact, 75% of the world's supply came from Lanai. That's what that island was all about. Nalinia Kabilis is the new editor of Lanai Today monthly newspaper. And in the lead article this month, she talks about how 800 Lanai workers got involved in pineapple strikes that were just breaking out all across the islands. On Lanai, the community pitched in gathering kiave wood, cooking meals, watching the kids, organizing the strike for 200 days. I had to give her a call. Nalinia? Nalinia, all right. Were you born and raised on Lanai? I grew up on Lanai, but I was born in the Philippines. And so, um, how old so were I you? Was here. I came when I was four. Oh, really? All 12 years of school there on Lanai? Yes. I wonder how big the high school is. My graduating class was 52, which is actually a big class. It is. Um, I think right now it hovers between average of 48 to maybe 50 students. Mm. And of the 50 that you graduated with, um, are any still on the island? Yes, uh, a handful. Uh -huh. um, but the majority of us left. How long have you been living on Lanai this time, Nalinia? <laughs> Since October. Ah. You know, um, I left Lanai fresh out of high school when I was 17. I went to, um, <laughs> I applied to colleges. Well, they had... The, one of the, I guess, common themes is that they had to have a good journalism program because I knew that I loved to write and I didn't know anything about creative writing. And so I thought, well, I can make a living as a journalist, as a writer. Um, you know, and I was 17 and I have, I'm crazy for Hemingway and I wanted to experience what he wrote about, you know, Paris and the bullfights in, <laughs> in Madrid and I knew I wouldn't find them here on Lanai. And so, you wanted your um, bite out of life. Yes, that's exactly what I wanted. And so I left. So I never really appreciated Lanai until much later, until I realized, oh my gosh, this place is amazing and beautiful. And there are stories here. You know, stories I never knew about, like the 1951 strike that I just wrote about in the um, February edition. Right. And I feel like, what, what an opportunity. By learning the stories of this island, I feel like I'm falling in love with this place. Like, I love her even more. Hmm. I mean, I liked your story about the strike because, for one thing, I never knew about it. And yeah. it was 1951, right? And then what I loved was um, how the town swung into action and how the whole energy and industry of the town was so supportive. It was really a uh, unifying um, moment. They stood firm in their convictions. And um, they, uh, other, I guess, pineapple companies fell. They, they settled. But... Lanai stood firm because the crux of their fight was the right to own a home. They fought because there were no homes to be 
bought, the company owned all the plantation homes. And so anyone who owns a home on Lanai now, you know, they have an enormous debt to these workers. How did that strike end? Well, that's coming in the in part two. And next <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll come back for that, okay? <laughs> okay, that would be great. Thanks so much. But, have a great weekend. You, you as well. You as well. That was Nilinia Kabilis, editor of the Lanai Today newspaper. And you can find the February edition and past issues also online at albertadigentlylanaitoday.com. Alberta DeGently, by the way, is the esteemed former editor of this paper. Nilinia has a wonderful column on trails I have loved in the February issue also. I think you'll enjoy it. So are you up for a little visit to the Friendly Isle now? <laughs> Let's head over to Moloka'i, all right? I met Kanoilani Davis in 2016 after seeing her work in the Mama Wearable Art Show. I think I got a tube skirt. <laughs> I mean, she was really doing different kinds of things. Uh, Kanoi was also a single mom, four growing children, juggling jobs, and I heard that last fall she was invited to show at London Pacific Fashion Week, representing us, Hawaii. So I figured, hey, let's let's get to know her. So Kanoi, what are you born and raised on Molokai? Yeah, I'm from Molokai. Um, been here all my life, uh, generations from here, uh, on my grandmother's side. So we go back. Uh, very far, far, far back on Molokai. And when did you, you know, start your getting pulled toward the fashion scene? You know, that's a really great question because Pomoina has evolved so much over the years. And it still is the intention of of preservation of names and elements through Hina. Oh, so you uh, started I... Pomahina with kind of an education idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was more, it was intended to retain the names of the elements that have been lost. So some of the names that I use today either have been shortened in time, have been forgotten, or has never been recognized or acknowledged. So this allows a space for those names to come back to life again. And these are the and, names you use for your designs, your patterns? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that was the intention of Pomahina. It still is the intention. Uh, where it shifted was in 2016 when I did my first horrible art show with Mamo and Auntie Vicky and the Pa'i Foundation. And, and that Maoli was Arts first. Month, that incredible fashion yes. show. That's how yeah, you broke that, out. That was my breakout into what... I didn't recognize as Pomahina being anything fashion. <laughs> now it was becoming a place where people were recognizing it as fashion. Well, I mean, I was stunned. You know, you had the, the kind of more geometric patterning, which was so exciting at that time, was just coming on. And you applied it to, like, workout gear. You had bicycle pants with this t- on it. You had leggings. You had shoes. Yeah, it was... Starting off, it was um, just regular plain shirts. To I actually did ohe kapala on a, and a natural dyes on my first, first, very first pieces. And Which then are those bamboo carved again. stamps, right? Mm-hmm. And going back to yeah. that kind of Hawaiian type of geometric design is really where people headed after about 2016. Right. right. <laughs> I started to use, you know, uh, my technological skills instead of using an ohe kapala or a bamboo stamp, I'm using my Apple pen, <laughs> doing it in ways that I can, I can expand on pieces that um, the art goes on. So that's why I have an array of, of pieces from shoes to leggings and workout gear, all the way to dresses and aloha shirts. And bags. <laughs> and bags, yes. <laughs> and everything in between. Okay, now tell me, how did London Fashion Week hear about you? pretty much how they found me was through social media and um, followed me and finally just got in touch with me through social media and invited me to um, to London. From Molokai. From Molokai. So you went last fall. Oh, my 
gosh. How was it? What was it like, Kanoi? It was incredible. The artists, the creations, the creativity, um, the, the array of um, designs uh, and designers uh, were inspiring. And they came from all over the world. Uh, I, I, I was feel? very nervous because we were asked to close the show. Being the first Hawaii contingent there at London Pacific Fashion Week, and that was nerve-wracking not only as a designer, but it was nerve-wracking as a Kanaka Maoli, as a Hawaiian woman, you know, from Molokai, because I felt like one, I could celebrate the fact that this Molokai woman single mom could get to London but it was also that pressure of making sure that you know I stay within my integrity um, I do what is right I do what is true to me and I don't change that so that that inspires others to do the same I mean did you find that your work was quite distinct there it was very distinct in, in in an idea of being very different, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, which is both a great thing and, you know, and I don't know if it's a bad thing at all, but... Now, so what did it make you think about your own work and, and where you're going? I honestly didn't waver from who I am and where I'm going. Um, for me, it really gave me more confidence in who I am and knowing that, okay, I can walk next to to amazing people like them and still be me and not have to change. And the best thing that I could do for myself right now is continuing um, the work that I've been doing, continuing um, my own personal growth as well as the growth of Pomahina, but within my lane. Has life been changing very much on Molokai? Has it been? Life has been interesting on Molokai. Um, right now it's snowbird season, so there's there's tons of tourists, tons of people. Other than that, I mean, our lifestyle here is the same, you know. We still struggle with our resources, but yet we thrive so gracefully within it as well. You know, learning to embrace uh the yearly shifts, you know, Molokai doesn't change so much. It, 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 it's a slow change. And I think one of the other things that we, we just recently celebrated was zero um, B&Bs on island. Uh, that's a huge one for us. Airbnb zero B&Bs? You have mm-hmm. zero B&Bs on yeah. your island? <laughs> that just got passed uh, unanimously. There's a limit. And that limit on Molokai is zero now? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, hey. Yeah. Um, I know it's hard to understand from an outside perspective, but being here and living here daily, generationally, um, you feel impacts that one will never feel unless they actually were living here for generations to really truly understand what these things mean. And um, it's really nice as a small community in an island that we can still have a, a little bit more control and a little bit more say in what we want for Molokai and what we want for the generations ahead of us. I'm very grateful for that because I know it's really hard um, on different islands. Jeez, Kanoi, I'm, I'm just so glad to have had this time to talk with you and catch up. Okay. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you. Aloha. Okay, have a great day. Aloha. You too. Jeez, you can see Kanoelani Davis's Pomahina line online. <laughs> and we think of you, Molokai, with respect. Molokai, Ohana, you keep it real for us today, okay? Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting For You Fabulous, Fashionable Women, woodblock prints featuring women from the Edo period in Japan through March 22nd. HonoluluMuseum.org. 
Aloha! This is Uncle Wayne of Uncle Wayne and the Howling Dog Band, inviting you to join us in HPR's Atherton Studio on Saturday, March 14th. It's a morning of children's music full of aloha and positivity that the whole family can enjoy. Cakey 7 and under get in free, but space is limited, so reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by the Cole Academy Child Development Centers. If you're in Honolulu, there's a new show at the First Hawaiian Bank Center downtown on Bishop Street. It's a retrospective of work by Hiroki Morinoe of Holualoa on Hawaii Island. You'll find his work in public and private collections all around the U.S. and in Japan. His gallery, Studio 7, and the related Donkey Mill Art Center there in Holualoa have become a nexus for art right there on the Kona Coast. Well, that's where I started with the Kona Art Center. That was started by Bob and Kara Rogers. You know, they took me under their wing and uh, got the community involved, sent me to on the scholarship for my first year at CCAC. Oh, California College of Arts and Crafts. I mean, major school. So they kind of found you when you were in, what, high school? Just after high school. They opened the Art Center in 1966 or 67. And they kind of spotted you and, and helped you to develop that, huh? Because you just think, how does a kid from a coffee farm in Holualoa <laughs> fix on art as their profession? Right, from uh, farm to art. Not farm to table here. <laughs> you know, he, tell me about where you live. Describing? <laughs> well, it's a small little town, and it used to be even smaller. We're really an isolated community here. The people in Kona are, were 90% all coffee farmers. So I grew up as a third-generation coffee farmer. Kona was so small, we knew everybody by their cars. And all the rust spots, you can tell who's coming down the road. <laughs> That's how small Kona was when I grew up. But I still farmed. After I got uh, back from art school, I took over the, fa uh, the family farm. The big difference is that I got rid of all the heavy chemicals and started to organic farm. What does being a coffee farmer do to your outlook on the day? <laughs> and the land. Well, uh, you know, like all of us growing up in Kona, you know, everybody picked coffee in the summer. And slowly, at uh, maybe in the late 60s, I think, you know, more people moved here. And uh, there was a child labor that came into the picture, so parents couldn't use their child to pick coffee anymore. Coffee prices dropped there in the early 60s, so many people went to find uh, more professional work. You know, hotels, there was only a couple of hotels back then, but uh, the airport, tourists became a big, bigger uh, economy for Kona, so, and then more hotels after that. But I have to say, I was a farmer longer than I've been an artist. <laughs> you know, how do you... Can you talk about your colors? Well, uh, I've been using the Trihue system, three colors, for the last 30 years. I learned to mix my colors. <laughs> so in the early days, I, 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 used, I had a much wider palette, but... Uh, um, there were all the earth tones. I had the browns, the, the greens, the ochres. I threw all of that away and learned to mix my own. I, I think there's, it's more exciting. You discover color as you mix it. The secret is I have two yellows, two reds, and two blues. I have one on the cool spectrum and one on the warm spectrum. So there's a warm red and a cool red, a warm blue and a cool blue, and warm and a cool yellow. So with that, I. With addition of white, I can mix any pigments I want. I don't have colors with exotic names anymore. <laughs> when do you find time to work these days? These days, I go to a farm for a couple hours in the morning, and then I come back and work in the studio. I already started a new series of work, 
And I remember Lila Roster, Lila Twixmith says, you must start something new after every exhibition. And she said, don't wait till the show gets down, start right away. So I, I hear her in the back of my head. Mm, that's good advice. Artists know there's always that slightly lost feeling, you know, after mounting a show. Hiroki Morinoa's new work continues a series on the Brazilian rainforest. And Hiroki got his big printing press rolling again. Uh, he's making direct impressions of plants. Hiroki's gallery in Holualoa is called Studio 7 Fine Arts, and he and his family are the force behind the Donkey Mill Art Center in Holualoa also. So it'll be fun to find out about that in the future. I hope we can. Maki, mahalo plenty for your help on this, by the way. Meanwhile, Hiroki Morinoe, Evolving Language, continues at the Honolulu Museum of Art at First Hawaiian Center on Bishop Street through June 26th. An extremely satisfying show. Let's close this segment with music from the Big Island. Kohala is the name of the group, and that's where they're from. Mainly, it's Charles Michael Brotman with Rupert Tripp and Charlie Ricardo in your Hawaiian way. For today's art-themed backyard quiz, we asked you to name the inspiration behind a particular statue housed at the State Museum, State Art Museum there. Hi, Sam. We're talking, of course, about Mr. Chicken Pants, sculpted by local artist Mei Izumi in Berkeley, California. The work was inspired by a Hawaiian myth involving a supernatural shape-shifting dog that's said to have originated on the island of Hawaii but did romp and roam across the islands. <laughs> Mei Izumi says all her artworks inspired in some way by stories. And that's certainly the case of Mr. Chicken Pants, which is based on the Hawaiian myth of Puapua Lena Lena. And that's the answer to today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, you can send it to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I was leafing through my vinyl collection the other day, and I pulled out this Alfred Apaka album of my mom's, you know, white pants, white shirt, red carnation lay. <laughs> I started thinking, you know, we need to hear these voices because, let's face it, not all of them are going to make it to your Spotify playlist. So I called the incredible Antoinette, Tony Lee. She's been the chair, coordinator, and board member for the Aloha Festival's parade for a decade plus, and she's the president of the Hawaiian Music Hall of Fame. I asked her if we could maybe spin through a few of the major voices from the 1950s and 60s here in Hawaii. Groups were not trying to play and sound like each other back then. Haunani Kahalewai? Yeah. Remember? What do you know about her, you know? She's a great, great singer. The first singer Tony mentions, Haunani Kahalewai. I mean, how many people have heard of her today? Born in Hilo, Hawaii Calls brought her to worldwide fame, and she deserves that fame today. Haunani had a three-and-a-half-octave range, contralto to mezzo-soprano, and she had this rootsy swing. Beverly Edwards called this the song of the Waikiki in-crowd. <laughs> oh, hail oi. Lena Machado. Lena Machado. Hula. <laughs> Remember? Uh, what did people think about that song when it came out? I think people liked it. In fact, we used to warm up to that song in Hala with Auntie Mikey. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's kind of a risque song. I mean, yeah. But you know, Hawaiians were very um, korohe, they call it. Naughty. Yeah. They were fun. They never used the word risque. You have to know the kauna about the song. Now, the kauna is the story of what made that musician or that author write that story. Keyhole Hula, though, puts it right out there. Well, yeah. Well, after locking the door on me, 
I want to know what goes in there. So I take a peek through that keyhole. Ladies, that's not the first time, and it won't be the last time. You know what, Tony? I still have a feeling that people had a whole lot more fun before. Well, you know, a lot of songs today are being written for what is going on in the community, in the Hawaiian community, right, for Hawaiian music. So that's not fun. And maybe that's what you're referring to. You're right, Hawaiian music was, it's a form of telling a story. And so there wasn't a lot of protest going on back then. Yeah, the 50s and 60s. There was a lot of celebration going on back then. That was before the Renaissance. So it was fun. They're just out there having a party, telling a story, and entertaining people. Yeah, you're really pointing out the difference in the time. Yeah, so now there's a lot going on in the community. So the music being written is really not fun, right? Because it's telling the story of how people are feeling and how they're feeling that they're mistreated and they're not agreeing with what's happening. And those that can write and come up with authoring a song or writing a melee, yeah, it will be historic for this time, but you're right, it's not necessarily a happy time. One example of a song voicing contemporary Hawaiian concerns is Ku Ha'aheo by Hinale Mawana Wangkalu. So much of the music back then was really entertaining. What was the entertainment scene like? Where would pe- people play this music? Well, at, you know, once upon a time, Waikiki was thriving, and we had a lot of places in Waikiki to play. But did local people go there? Local people all came out. Look at Dukes. When Dukes was open in Waikiki, they always had music there. Uh, International Marketplace, when Don Ho was there, that place was packed all the time. With local people? Local people. Chuck Seller. Where did they park now? <laughs> Along the streets. That's right. You could park on Kalakaua. Yeah. And then, you know, Chuck Seller. I mean, uh, that was Outrigger, I believe. I mean, every place you went, Halikulani, all the hotels had a room. Uh, Hilton Hawaiian Village had the Longhouse and yeah. all of that. Yeah, so we had... Now you're I'm telling dis- my age. No, you're <laughs> showing the whole ecosystem from showrooms down to clubs. Right. And it look was at all going. today. Now, as you know, I'm the president of Hawaiian Music Hall of Fame. You look around, and there aren't many places for Hawaiians to play anymore. Fifties and sixties. What groups were around at that time? Kahawana Lake Trio was there. Kahawana Lake Trio. They're just three musicians, but the music sounds so complex. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Their knowledge of their instrument, I mean, they, what Kupuna say, made their instrument sing. It wasn't just plain. It was very um, thoughtful, um, very innovative. Their keys, their strumming was all different. It was just the way they put it together was lovely, actually. They were the invitations. Oh, the invitations. That's who they were. You're right. The invitations. I mean, their I harmonies are crazy. Where do they come and from? And so different, right? Then Kahawana. You couldn't put them on the same page. 
That's what made them all so popular and unique. Do you hear that today? was The Invitations, off their 1959 album, RSVP. A lot of people were turned on to Hawaiian music by Alfred Apaka. Right, Alfred Apaka. I don't know a thing about him. He was awesome, and he played at the Hilton Hawaiian Village. Oh, really? He was in... years. Oh. Oh, yeah, he was a soloist. Where do we have that now? Where he just stood there like a solo singer, like a great crooner, like, you know... That's correct. And you know that Robert Casimiro has a brother. He's like an Alfred Apaka of today. There's no room for him. (laughs) Where is there a room that they could put this guy in because he would be a showman, in my estimation. We've got to hear Rodney Casimiro, right? Tony's choice there, once with the Royal Hawaiian Band Ensemble. You are my evening star. Do you want to hear some Alfred Apaka? Visions of Hawaii were formed around this voice. Really, so much fun, Tony. Thank you so much. Thank you, Noy. And a general spin through some iconic voices of Hawaii, flavors from the 50s and 60s. This has been the Aloha Friday Conversation, an hour of art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii on HPR One. Now, if you've got an idea for this show, if you know an island treasure the rest of us should know about, please send me a note. (laughs) If you have comments or suggestions, I'd love to hear it too. Well guess that's about a wrap for the Aloha Friday conversation. Mahalo for your company. Go ahead and call our talkback line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The show is available if you want to hear it again on the conversation page on the HPR website. This show is produced by Lillian Zong, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, and Paige Okamura. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Kathleen Cruz continues the conversation on Monday. Until then, let's take care of each other. Happy Aloha Friday! Thank you.